And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show. It's, of course, Tuesday as we wrap up the last week of the quarters we talked about yesterday. You know, one of the things that's going on right now, and, and again, kind of markets a little bit sloppy yesterday, assets kind of moving all over the place. This is the end of the fiscal year for a lot of mutual funds, hedge funds, other types of things that kind of wrap up their fiscal year here. And then we have another big chunk of them that wrap up at the end of the year. So part of what you see going on this week and part of this volatility that we're seeing, and, and again, when you talk about volatility, we've seen prices, you know, price movements really pick up here lately is a lot of this kind of quarter end, but also fiscal year end, uh, rebalancing, window dressing, et cetera, um, getting ready to wrap up the month. Again, that's that's gonna end here in just a few days. So again, volatility yesterday, markets were down in the morning, ro- uh, rallied back up, kind of finished in positive territory yesterday. Good news was, is we actually saw some buying right at the end of the day, so, so that's encouraging. Uh, this morning, futures are looking here a bit weaker, uh, not down a lot, but down a bit. So again, we just kind of continue to kind of just wrestle, uh, as, as they say, um, you know, kind of with these current price levels. And again, as we, as we talked about yesterday, and we'll kind of touch on this morning uh, in the Before the Bell segment, um, there is some downside risk here. So again, we just have to be a little bit cautious of that. Um, outside of that right now, though, there's not a lot going on. Uh, we don't have any real news to drive the markets uh, to, any, to any real big degree. No, no uh, economic news of, of importance. Um, got a few manufacturing indexes coming out. Those are still weak. We know that. Um, but again, no, no big catalyst here to move the markets in one direction or another. So we're kind of at the mercy of just the quarter end rebalancing right now for the most part. But beginning next week, we're going to start talking about earnings uh, because we'll be back into earnings season. So that'll help maybe at least give the markets something to focus on um, as we start to, to move forward. One of the things, though, that um, you know, is worth paying attention to, of course, <clears throat> is kind of what's happening also at the beginning of next week, which is the, restart, re, the, the restart of the payments for student loans. We're going to get that first kind of look to see how that impacts retail spending. And again, we have, we've kind of been in this kind of la-la land for the, the, the economy through the first three quarters of this year. It's, it's, it's been good. Uh, the question now is, will it, can, can it stay good right through the end of the year? And there's also some real questions here. And we wrote a report about this just recently on the website talking about the differential between GDP, which is the gross domestic product, and GDI, which is gross domestic income, and we talked about that here on the show. Um, But that gap between those two is something that doesn't happen very often. That gap is the largest on record right now. Um, And historically, gross domestic product will catch down to GDI because, again, it's it's gross domestic incomes that ultimately drive the product part, right, the the buying and the consumption. So uh, if if GDI doesn't start to improve here really quick, and, and again, there's no indication here that that is the case because there's no driver for it that GDP will have to catch down. So there is there is some concern here about some negative revisions to some of this economic data that we've seen earlier this year that may be kind of overstating the strength of the economy. And that's, uh, again, that's not gonna be surprising here at all. 
high interest rates um, are, are impacting consumers and consumption and corporations. And uh, the topic of uh, this weekend's newsletter is, is, is basically talking about this. We've got this huge debt wall that is now coming up next year that these high interest rates are going to impact. There's $4 trillion worth of refinancings that have to occur next year. That's no small number. And that is gonna be very important to how the markets and the economy and all this stuff type wreck. Type because bankruptcies are on the rise. They haven't taken off yet. But you know when you start getting into that more recessionary state, which we expect sometime next year, you should see a fairly sharp pickup in those bankruptcies, of course, as the economy really starts to show its weaker underbelly. And again, I, you know, there's, there's plenty of evidence that's coming. This lag effect that we've been talking about is just taking a lot longer because of all that liquidity, suspension of payments, et cetera, everything we talked about here on the show before, has just been allowing the economy to kind of roll along here, seemingly stronger than expected. But unfortunately for the Federal Reserve, I think they're gonna find out that they um, have hiked rates too much for too long, and they're going to eventually pay the price for that. Okay, uh, talking a little bit about the markets uh, yesterday. Of, of course, as we said, you know, markets are just kind of holding support here, getting oversold. Um, again, markets are going to be weak this morning, so we're going to kind of retest uh, the the downside from yesterday. Uh, again, you know, we've broken the 100-day moving average. We took out the 50. The 20s crossed below the 50. So there's certainly some negative activity going on here. Uh, right now with the S&P. So we certainly don't want to, to uh, dissuade that. And as we had kind of talked about uh, previously as well, <clears throat> you know, we had this kind of, you know, kind of declining top that we were dealing with and really weren't able to get the, the market out of that. And of course, we kind of had this wedge pattern that we took out here recently as well. So that does set the market up to retest this 200-day moving average. So there is certainly some downside risk here. Um, the, the one thing that we continue to kind of work through, of course, is, is talking about this kind of end of the quarter rebalancing. So there's certainly a, the potential here for this market to do just about anything you can imagine it will do. But we are oversold here on a pretty deep basis in terms of our MACD sell signal. Um, that needs to flatten out and start to turn up here. That would give us some indication that we're probably closer to a near-term bottom. Uh, relative strength index is also very oversold here. So uh, again, we do have uh, some potential here for the market to bounce. And, and probably we're going to find some level in here for it to bounce. I'm just not sure exactly where it is. Um, but again, we've got potential here for this market to re uh, kind of get a fairly strong, decent bounce here. And then, of course, you can use that bounce as a better opportunity to reduce risk, rebalance risk, whatever you need to do uh, to get you into a better position. Uh, but again, you know, this is part of this is, you know, get through this week. If we go back statistically and look, when you have both a week, August and September, historically, October tends to be a pretty positive month. So again, be careful here. You know, don't don't panic here right now and go. Oh, you know, the market's going to crash. I, I got to sell everything. Um, we've had two weak months in a row. That is a fairly long stretch of weakness. And again, we've talked about before. We have these buying stampedes, where individuals think the markets just won't stop going up. And as we were talking about in June and July, we're going to get a correction. That correction could be anywhere from three to five to ten percent. We're working through that process right now. This is the selling stampede side of those buying stampedes. So when it, when it, for every positive, you gotta have a negative. So if you have a period of strong stock market rallies, you're gonna have a period 
of, of, of declining stock market rallies. And it's just that's the way the markets work. And we always tend as investors to just look at the upside. Oh, if it's going up, it's just always going to go up. Or like now, it's going down, it's just only going to go down from here. That's not the way the markets work. So try to keep some level of just stability within kind of your attitude and forecast. We're just going through a corrective cycle. It's been very orderly. There's nothing going on here that is disturbing or concerning, nothing like that. So again, we just have to work through this process, probably get a rally here in October, November, December. And then next year, that's where things may get a little bit more challenging again, as all these other things economically, financially, uh, interest rate wise, start to really impact uh, the overall economy. And of course, that's gonna translate into lower earnings for companies and that's where valuations become the issue because valuations right now very high if earnings come down prices will have to come down as well so the big risk for a bigger correction is likely next year uh, we're pretty much through this cycle here look for a rally then you can rebalance risk at a little bit better level okay that uh, what you need to know before the bell this morning so when we come back from the break we'll pick up with why markets don't compound that's coming up next on the real investment show Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So I want to talk about something that I have to write about probably once every year and a half or two because every time markets start having even a little bit of a correction right um, there's this whole thesis that comes out about and this to support the buy and hold strategy um, you know just you know, invest your money don't worry about the wiggles um, you're gonna make 8% a year on your money it's it's fine and they you know so they promote this idea that you know if you just kind of buy and hold an index over you know, your investing life cycle, you're going to make 8% every year and it's going to be all good. And you're going to have millions of dollars in the bank. And, and there's plenty of articles about this that are, you know, run around and they say, well, if you just invested a thousand dollars a month in your Roth IRA, and if you just expect to get 8% a year, then by the time you retire, you'll have a million, you know, million dollars in your Roth IRA. Sounds great. Problem is the markets don't compound. And this is, the giant problem that exists and why investors don't do as well as all of this stuff that people write about. And, and the one thing that's always comes out when we talk about this, and we'll kind of get into this in a second, was Albert Einstein once said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And compound interest is a, a magnificent thing interest, not returns. But see, what, what Wall Street does is take that statement and try to apply it to the stock market. And they say, well, the stock market has averaged 8% over the last 123 years. And it's a true statement. If you, I've got a chart here of the S&P index on an inflation-adjusted basis going back to 1871. And there's a very clear uptrend in that index. So over time, if you take a look at the earnings growth 
the, the growth of the index plus dividends, it's averaged 8% through 20, uh, 2009. Now, since 2009, because of all the fiscal accommodations that we've done, we've averaged about 12% over the last 10 years, right? So that's kind of an anomaly because of all that money. But nonetheless, over the last 123 years, you've averaged about 8%. But you didn't get 8% every year. Take a look at the chart, right? The chart's not a smooth line. It's all over the place, right? You have, uh, you know, many years where the markets are going up and you have a long period of years where stocks are going down. If you're going down, you're not making 8% a year, right? So this is the, the problem that comes along. And of course, this has everything to do with valuations when you start talking about when you start your investing process, right? So one thing to remember is that as individuals, we don't have 123 years to invest. So if unless you've discovered the secret to you know immortality or you're a vampire, one of the two, um, you're not going to live 123 years. So for most of us, our, our investing journey starts when we're you know 40 years, 45 years of age because you know we graduate college, you've got to raise kids, you've got to buy a house, you've got to send them to college and you just can't save a lot of money. Your earnings power hasn't really matured yet. So for most Americans, they don't get really serious about saving for retirement until they're 40, 45, maybe even 50 years old. And that's okay. I mean, you still have 20, 25 years of good saving and investing time uh, to get to your goal. So you can, you can, you can do it, right? Just got to get serious about it. But if, you're, if your time horizon is 20 years, valuations have everything to do about what your future returns are going to be. And... When valuations were very low, like they were following the Great Depression in, in the 1940s or in the 1970s when valuations were very low, your subsequent rates of return were extremely high. Now, if you start your period at a high valuation, your forward returns over the next 20 years of your normal lifespan are pretty low. And a good example of this is in 1999-2000, valuations were very high. And for the next 17 years, your return was zero, right? Now, since then, because of lots of monetary accommodation, but valuations did come down, right? We got down to about 14 times earnings in 2008. The returns following that were decent, right? You, you made good money. Along with a lot of financial accommodation, you made good money in the markets. Now we're at very high valuations again. So if you think about where you begin your investing journey now, think about what your future returns are going to be, maybe a different outcome. But this is the problem with this idea that markets compound because markets don't compound. And in fact, there's very long periods, and again, we go back through history and talk about this, there's very long periods where the market returned basically nothing. Um, but this brings up this rule of this compound interest, right? So Albert Einstein said compound interest. Now think about this for a moment. I buy a bond. It pays 5% interest. And so every year I'm going to get that 5% interest off the bond. And when the bond matures, I get all my money back. So every year I'm making money. I never lose money. I get 5% every single year. If I make an investment that pays me 8% a year, right? What the rule of 72 says is that if I get 8% every single year in nine years, because I can take eight, divide that into 72, so in nine years, theoretically, I will double my money. 
that's assuming I get 8% every single year, which I would get from an interest-bearing instrument, but I don't necessarily get that from the stock market. I mean, we just had a year where you lost 20% last year, right? Didn't make eight. So in order to get that, I've got, so in order to get back on track, I've not only have to make up that 20% loss from last year, I've got to add another 8% to it on top of it for last year, plus the 8% for this year. So you get the compounding problem in reverse when you lose money. But the thesis is that, you know, you pick any number, divide it by 72, pick any return number you want, so 4%, 5%, whatever it is, divide it by 72, and that's how many years it'll take you to double your money. Here's the problem with that. Let's take a look at a $10,000 investment, right? We're going to prove the point first that in if, if I have an 8% rate of return, that in nine years, I'm going to my, my, my money back. Right? I'm going to double my money. So again, I take $10,000, I invest it, and in nine years at 8% every single year, I have a very smooth line, right? I double my money. So I've got my $10,000 plus another $10,000, I'm right at $20,000 in nine years. So in theory, it works, right? Einstein's math is correct. It works on interest-bearing instruments. But here's the problem. Let's take a look at that same $10,000 investment and just assume we have some variable rates of return in here. So we have, we have the original estimate of um, you know, just 8% every single year. We double our money in, in nine years. If I throw in one year where we're down 8%, it adds two years to my time horizon to double my money because I've got to make up those losses. If I have two years that are down, it further extends that period of time. If I have a year where we lose 40% of my, our money, right, like the financial crisis, it grossly extends that rate of return time to get to where I want to be. And this has everything to do with retirement because, again, as we said earlier, if I'm just starting saving, and just take a look at this chart for a second, if I just, if, if, I'm, if I'm 40 years old, I'm going to retire at 60, I've got 20 years to get there. If I am, am betting on 8% a year, which is what most financial plans call for, right? Say, oh, just 8% a year, you'll be fine. One 40% crash basically takes out my entire lifespan that I have to save and retire for retirement. I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to be able to grow my money enough to get to retirement. So this is the problem with this thesis that markets compound over time because they don't. There is no such thing as, as compound returns in the markets. And, and we need to remember this and keep a close watch on this because here's where it gets, you know, the, the interesting part of all this, which is looking at the return over time. So again, if we take a look at making an investment in the markets, and then looking at that return over time. So this is basically $10,000 invested in the markets. The blue shaded area is the compounded rate of return. So you can see that $10,000 invested in the markets from 1964 to present would grow to a total of $93,756. So not bad. That's not, that's not dollar cost averaging, nothing like that. It's just a raw $10,000 investment compounded over time. So it's not bad, right? You've got a huge increase in the value of your investment. The problem is, is that $10,000 invested in the actual market 
didn't give you that because of years where the markets did not go up, right? So that same $10,000 invested, I'm sorry, I said 10,000. It's a thousand. Thousand dollars invested. So that same thousand dollars invested only grew to be about $1,200 over that course of time because of the issue of what happened. So there's a huge deficit between compounded rates of return and actual rates of return. And that's the thing that we've got to kind of keep a watch on over time is that markets don't compound because of losses. And that's the thing that we've got to be most cognizant of is keeping, you know, minimizing those downside draws so that the upside can actually grow over time. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about things like bonds that pay a steady stream of interest payments. You never have to worry about the losses. And as Albert Einstein once said, compound interest, interest is a magical thing. But there is no such thing as compound returns. All right, be right back after the break. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So I uh, got a, an, an interesting question um, on our YouTube chat this morning. Give me one second here. I'm trying to fix a problem with my computer. <laughs> it's been acting up this morning. Uh, there we go. So the, the question on YouTube was talking about two different bonds, and this is from uh, Brooks Bird, uh, so I appreciate the, uh, the question. But basically just looking at two different bonds, and this is always kind of confusing. One's a zero-coupon bond. One's a bond that pays 6%. It's a uh, federal farm credit bank. So he's like, well, what's the difference? There's no difference. The yield is going to be the same. So it just depends on whether you want to buy a bond that appreciates in price and you get no income from it, or you buy a bond that can go up and down in price, and it will mature at face value, as the zero coupon will do, and, but you will get a stream of interest payments on, over time. So it's the same investment. The yield will be ultimately the same. So if you're comparing two similar bonds, now there's, if you, you can't always compare two bonds and say, okay, that's a zero and this one's not. If that's a corporate and that's a treasury, the yields are going to be different, right? Um, time frame to maturity. There's going to be a difference. If I buy a zero-coupon bond with three months to maturity and a 10-year bond to maturity, those are going to be different yields. But if you buy two exact instruments, say both treasuries, both 10 years to maturity, one has a coupon, one is zero, the yield is ultimately the same. There's no difference. It just The only difference will be you'll buy the zero at a discounted price, and every day that it gets closer to maturity – that price will grow. 
So the bond price will grow, and at maturity, you'll get 100 cents on the dollar. So if you paid 90 cents on the dollar for that zero, it's going to mature at 100 cents on the dollar. So you will have a gain of that 10 cents on the dollar. That'll, that's your yield. Conversely, if I buy a treasury bond, same maturity, everything else is the same. I buy it at 100 cents on the dollar. I'm going to get a coupon every six months, every quarter, whenever they pay it out. And then at maturity, I get all my money back. The yields are the same. So there's no difference. It just depends on whether you want to see price appreciation and capture it that way, or if you want a steady stream of cash flow. And so maybe that comes down to whether or not you need the cash flow. If you don't need the cash flow, if you don't care about the income stream into the portfolio, zeros are fine. If you're dependent on the cash flow or need the cash flow to live on, then don't buy a zero because <laughs> so, you get no cash flow. That's it. So it's not complicated. Um, so, again, you know, we were just talking about, you know, how, you know, how markets don't compound over time. And, and these are the important things. But again, this goes back to all kind of investments in general is that you have to understand what the dynamics are, whether you're investing into real estate or you're investing in you know, private businesses or uh, investing in the stock market, is understand what drives the return, right? And this is the thing that you know, a lot of people get themselves in trouble with. Uh, you know, a good, good example right now, Airbnbs, right? A lot of people ran out and they bought properties and they go, well, I'm just going to Airbnb this thing. And they were buying properties in wacky places where pff, do people want to actually go there? It's, it's kind of the question, right? You know, if you buy it, you, just because you buy a house and go to rent it out doesn't mean that people are going to rent it out, right? Um, but, you know, people ran out. We had this massive flood of, of purchases, but people were overpaying for the properties. And when they overpaid for the property, they couldn't generate the income they needed from the rents that they were renting out the place for, right, on these Airbnbs. And so the math didn't work. So you always have to understand the cost of what you pay for something and what your ultimate rate of return is going to be. And there are some investments that that's very easy to do. And then there's other investments like stocks, which are much more difficult to do. Because in the short term, psychology drives the valuations of stocks all over the place. You know, you have some really good news in the economy. Stocks go running up ahead of time and start pricing in future expectations. That's what markets are doing. Markets are betting on that things are going to be better than we expect. And the reason that markets have been doing so well earlier this year was on the expectation that, well, we're going to avoid a recession. Everything's going to be fine. And over the course of the next, you know, uh, next few years, earnings are going to continue to grow. In fact, you know, right now, analyst estimates on earnings are near record highs. So, but in order to have that, we've got to have really strong economic growth, and so we've got to have earning. We've got to have economic growth growing at three or three and a half percent to create the earnings growth to support the valuations that stocks are currently trading at, and that's where it becomes problematic. But not just problematic from the the outlook, but just trying to value what the expected rate of return is going to be, because there's so many vari variables they can impact that return and markets can remain you know, irrational longer than you can remain solvent. You know, all those, all those old sayings. 
There's other investments like a bond that's super easy to tell, right? Because it's going to mature at face value and you're going to get a certain interest payment. doesn't matter what price is due in the interim. A maturity, you get 100 cents on the dollar. And you get your stream of cash flow. So that's you, you, can, you can buy a bond and with 100% certainty and accuracy to one one-hundredth of a penny, know what your return will be at, at maturity. You can't do that with a stock. Real estate is not as difficult as stocks, but it's still got variability to it, right? You've got real estate market cycles. You've got all that, you know, everything else that goes in there. But basically, if I buy a piece of real estate, I have a set value. I know, I know that even in the worst case, right, there's a value to that property. A business can go bankrupt, right? Lucent, Global Crossing, Enron, WorldCom. I mean, we can go through history. Lots of, lots of big companies have gone bankrupt. And these were companies, WorldCom, as an example, uh, you know, run by Bernie Ebers at the time, Enron. These were companies that people were buying going, oh, this company is going to be here for the next 100 years. They're the next GE. They're the next AT&T. You know? and, and, and so the thesis is I can buy a company and I can just sit on it forever because there's a finite value to these companies, but that's only if they stay in business. The risk in the stock market is always zero. I don't have that risk in real estate. Land is land. Land's always going to have a value. The house, I may, you know, the house may get knocked down by a hurricane, right? But the land's got value. There's always going to be value for the land. It may not be as much as I paid for it, right? Maybe I'm buying land on the outskirts of town expecting that, you know, population growth is going to go in my direction, and for some reason it goes in a different direction, and so nobody wants to live out where I am, so maybe I overpaid for the property. I can't, that happens. But there's always value. So it's important to understand in any investment what you're paying for and what the expectations are going to be. And that'll help you be a better investor. And, and, and when you have markets that are, that are variable and volatile like the ones we're in now, that makes it difficult because it's like, man, this year, the, earlier this year, the markets are only going to go up from here. Now everybody's going, oh, the market's just going to go down from here. And, 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 you know, consumer sentiment is falling and investor sentiment is falling and markets are getting deeply oversold here. And you're getting a lot of negative attitudes. But that's markets. So it's, it's always important, like I said, just you've always got to just keep things in perspective. But things can change. Uh, just a good example. Yesterday, uh, we're sitting at home, and my, I'm at home, and my wife comes in the door, and she's like, oh, she goes, rainstorm's coming. It's getting really dark outside, right? And I live in this, this, this neighborhood that I'm renting my uh, house in now while we're finishing up our other house. Is an older neighborhood. It was built back in the 50s and 60s, so all the houses there are you know, you know, vintage 1960s. It's what they call mid-century houses now. It's a thing. But there's just these tons of really old oak trees all through this neighborhood. I mean, every yard has two or three big, I'm talking about big, hundred-year-old oak trees in the front yard. And so this rainstorm blows in. I mean, it comes in and leaves in a matter of minutes. It just, it just blows through and... And all of a sudden, my wife is like, oh, my gosh, we lost a tree. And so 
it's not our house. It's not our house, right? It's rental. I'm like, well, I said the owners are really going to be upset about that. But we walked outside, and it was my neighbor's house right next door. One of their hundred year old old oak trees blew over, and this tree barely missed the house, right? And I'm literally, it's laying up next to the house, so they're going to have to deal with this. But 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 an inch further, and they would have lost the corner of their house, right? So the point about you know, value in real estate is is that things can change. So the value of their real estate declined yesterday because they lost a tree. Trees add value to your real estate property. If they had, if the tree had fallen through the middle of their house, <laughs> and then they like, okay, well, we'll just sell it like this. The value of the house would have gone down because the house was destroyed, right? So things can impact even the most stable investment. And people will tell you, it's like, oh, just invest in real estate because real estate's a surefire thing. Just buy gold. Gold, you know, gold's a sure thing. There's no sure thing about anything, right? Everything has a risk to it. There's some things that have a lot less risk, but everything has a risk. And just make sure you understand what that risk is relative to what the expected rate of return is to make sure that's really what you're looking for. All right, quick break. We'll come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Talk a little bit about government shutdown here for a second because lots of uh, already, and not surprising, lots of misstatements and fear mongering and everything else coming out of the White House and you know everywhere else. And of course, everybody's trying to jockey for position. And it's the same thing as when we're going through the debt ceiling debate. You know, remember the debt ceiling debate is like, oh my gosh, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to default on our debt. No, we're not, and we didn't. And we never do because the mandatory spending always gets paid. Same thing with government shutdowns. In a government shutdown, discretionary spending gets cut. So what's discretionary spending? That's your parks, right? Your national parks. That's when we close down the national parks. Non-essential workers. We have about 950,000 non-essential workers that will get laid off. They'll get furloughed while the government is shut down, however long that lasts. They don't get paid while they're furloughed, but they get all their money back as soon as the government reopens. They come back to work and they get all their back pay. Well, what things do get paid regardless of the government being shut down? Well, if you're what's considered an essential worker, you still have a job and you still get paid. Right? Interest on the debt gets paid. So if you own bonds, you own treasury bonds, you're going to get paid. That gets, interest gets paid no matter what. Always. If we don't have the money for it, we just print more of it. But interest gets paid during a shutdown. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid checks. Those go out. Military, they get paid. They're essential. So all this stuff that you're going to hear about this government shutdown, is mostly nonsense. But it's, it's, it makes for great headlines, makes for great clickbait, gets you to read stuff, 
get you all riled up against the right or, you know, riled up against the left, you know, whatever. Because that's what media outlets do. But the reality is, is just very basic. Like, we're going to shut down the government if, if we get there. We may or may not get there. And there'll be a lot of teeth gnashing and hand wringing and finger pointing and everything else. And then we'll eventually come to a resolution and we'll increase spending by 8% like we did every year since 2008. And we'll go on with life. Doesn't mean that's a good thing. We're just going to keep ramping up the debt, keep increasing the deficit. But, you know, that's how we run government now. But all these things, whether it's a debt ceiling debate or whether it's a government shutdown, disregard all the headlines. We're not going to default on our debt. Interest is going to get paid. If you own treasury debt, you're going to get paid. You know, if you have a job for the government and your job is non-essential, you're a park ranger, you're going to be laid off for a while. You'll be furloughed. If you're, you know, kind of administrative somewhere in a nondescript organization, you're probably going to get furloughed and shut down for a while until the government is, is reopened again. But you work for the military, you work in the government, you're a congressman, you're a senator, you're considered essential, and I would like to reclassify essentiality of Republicans and Democrats and congressmen and senators. I don't think they're essential at all. And maybe if they got furloughed, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> but they're going to get paid, and that's going to keep going. So don't worry about this government shutdown. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's going to you know, have lots of headlines about clipping, you know, percentages off GDP and you know, all this other stuff. And, and that's partly true, right? There's, you know, the longer the government shutdown goes on, it will impact GDP to a small degree because basically you are clipping out, you know, some economic growth. Go government spending makes up part of the GDP calculation. So if we do cut spending on the government side, it will impact the GDP calculation. A lot of the hiring, right, a lot of the employment that we've had over the last couple of years has been government jobs. So, you know, it's going to impact GDP. Now, is, is a government shutdown going to cause the recession? No, it's not. That's a different issue altogether. But anyway, so the, the point is, though, is that just relax. Right. Don't don't worry about stuff you don't need to worry about. And this is the biggest mistake that investors make is they worry about these big macro issues that a you have no control over and b are things that are so far out in the future that they just aren't going to matter to you. Right. Um. You know, the eventual collapse of the U.S. economy because of the deficit. You know, if you were betting on that game in the 1980s with Japan, you're still wrong. Right. So don't worry about stuff you don't have control over. Don't worry about stuff that you can't nail down into specifics. Just focus on what you can control over and 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 don't pay attention to all the other nonsense. So, you know, the best thing you can do and look, my my work day, you know, I have CNBC on right now in the studio just so I can keep an eye on what futures are doing so I can tell you what futures are doing prior to the market opening. During the day, I don't watch CNBC. I don't read news headlines. I don't do that. I focus on my data. I do the I do the work on the technical side. I work on the fundamental side. But all the media stuff, turn it off. 
The only time I look at the media is when, you know, I'll, I'll scroll headlines and I'll scroll articles when I'm looking for a topic to write about. But, you know, that's it. Because if you get wrapped up in what all this nonsense, and, and again, you got to remember, all this stuff in the media is clickbait. If it bleeds, it leads. We've talked about that before. So all this stuff that you hear in the media is mostly garbage. 98% of it's garbage. 90% of it's not true. And it has nothing to do with anything you've got control over. So just turn it off. You'll, you'll be happier, right? And, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I see this on social media all the time now is that there's this kind of this rising trend of the reminiscences of the, of the 70s and the 80s, right? When life was simpler and we had eight-track tape players and, and we went outside and we played all day and, and you know, we drank out of the garden hose and, and we tried to assassinate each other with, with jarts. And... <laughs> You know, all those things as we were growing up, right? But life was simpler then. And so we have this, we have this, this urge, right? We have this desire to go back to simpler times. And, and you can have that, right? Put down the phone. Get off of social media. Stop watching the media. Stop watching the news. It's, it's garbage, right? And you'll be happier. Because you've got no control over it anyway. I mean, look, you know, what goes on in Washington, you got no control over, and it's not going to change. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It's not going to change. So if you can't change it, if you can't do anything about it, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm not saying not to vote. You should go vote, right? You should definitely go voice your opinion, and you should vote. But don't expect that whoever you vote for is going to go to Washington and change things. It's not going to change. It hasn't changed. It's getting worse. Eventually, it'll break, and then it'll fix itself, but you're not going to change it. So if you can't change it, don't worry about it. You're making yourself miserable, and it's infecting your ability to invest. And just understand what the markets are doing near term and focusing on that. And look, the markets aren't easy to begin with, right? I mean, markets are a guessing game at best. Nobody knows what's going to happen, and we all just make our best guess. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, and we work through it, but... It, but what I do know is, is that even when I'm wrong, short-term, the long-term fundamentals and technicals will play out. So I just have to be patient and wait for that to work, as long as the thesis is sound, right? And if the thesis, if the thesis changes or the facts change, then we have to change. We have to say, well, that wasn't the right thing. We have to do something else. But if you turn off everything else and just focus on what matters... A, you'll do better, and B, you'll you'll be a lot happier. So anyway, that's my two cents worth for today. There you go. <laughs> I'm not a fatalist. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm always expecting the best of outcomes, right? So it just always, you know, and, and, and you have to be, right? And it's always interesting. If you ever meet people that own businesses, they're always very optimistic because you have to be. You can't be negative and own a business because you'll be constantly thinking you're going out of business. <laughs> so you can't, you won't invest, you won't take the risk you need to grow a business. So if you ever meet business owners, always very optimistic. And I'm very optimistic about the future. Right. I know we have problems. I know we'll work through them and, you know, the thing, you know, those type of things. But uh, again, you know, the big point is, is that, you know, do the work and don't worry about all the nonsense you hear in, in the mainstream media because 
It's not news. Hasn't been news in a long time. So anyway, markets right now, futures are down a bit. Again, we're just kind of working through this end of the quarter rebalancing. Um, again, this is also the fiscal year end for a lot of mutual funds, hedge funds, portfolio managers, et cetera. So there's a lot of positioning uh, for the end of their reporting year. We'll have another big batch of that at the end of uh, in, in December as we get ready to wrap up the fiscal year end for all the other mutual funds and stuff. So, you know, there's there's going to be a bit of volatility this week. We'll just keep a watch on it tomorrow, of course. Um, We'll, we'll see kind of how today plays out. If we, if we you know, break below this current little support level we've got, the market doesn't recover today, then that's probably going to bring a focus in towards the 200-day moving average, again, slightly below where we are now. But again, some more downside potential to the market. So just be aware of that. All right, that wraps up the show for the day. Have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow uh, with Danny Ratliff in the morning. So we'll get into it then. See you tomorrow.